0: following program may contain potty talk. No guarantee, but it just may. It's Friday, May 15th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A picture of Tara Reid is beginning to emerge that depicts her as a person who is dishonest and manipulative. Or, depending on what your framework was before you ever heard the name Tara Reid, she is being unfairly tarnished by her frailties and failings, failings that offer zero insight on the central question of her allegation, Was she sexually assaulted by Joe Biden in a Senate hallway in 1993? So today, Politico ran a story interviewing past landlords of Reed who were all stiffed by her on rent. One said, quote, did she think that all the people she ran over would just roll over and die and forget about her? No, I recognize her face. Another called her manipulative. And a third, a lawyer who rented a yurt to her said she also didn't pay her bills. More on that lawyer later. So there are, however, frames, ideologies, ways of looking at the world, things that we've learned about how people are and how victims of uh, sexual assault behave, and these ideologies steer us in one direction or another. And if your frame emphasizes believe women, or there is no perfect victim, or it is quite common for victims to re-remember details, you will bear it no mind when stories evolve. You will find every bit of the Politico story unpersuasive. I understand that. But if you are pretty much unschooled in this way of thinking, it's admittedly a newish way of looking at sexual abuse, you probably do take into account the three of Reed's former landlords say she ran out on obligations and lied. You may even take special note of one, a lawyer named Kelly Klett, who says, I felt two things when she contacted me, that she was feeling me out to see if I would represent her pro bono, and there was a sense that she was trying to plant a story with me so She could later say, I told the story to this attorney I worked with. Klett goes on, I support women who have been assaulted. Unfortunately, I cannot support Tara Reid. And then there's another big investigation. PBS interviewed 74 former Biden staffers. Not one said they believed it. Here's how PBS put it. They generally did not want to weigh in with certainty on whether they believed Reid's allegation was true, but they all said it is at odds with their experience. There are frames that direct you to dismiss such an insight. Legitimate frames. Reid's lawyer, Douglas Wigdor, is quoted as offering one. It's not surprising that people who worked for Biden would stick with him. It could help them personally. But still, members of the public who are not schooled in feminist discourse or who have not affirmatively committed to a position of believe women may find it harder and harder to side with Tara Reid in what used to be called a he said, she said. And when the average voter who just defaults to whatever their gut tells them or what they believe, when they saw statements like this one offered by Biden to Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC last night, I think it could go far and have an effect. And I give you my word, it never, ever happened. Biden was then asked, what would you say to a woman who believes Tara Reed? And if they believe Tara Reed, they probably shouldn't vote for me. I wouldn't vote for me if I believe Tara Reid. That really doesn't prove anything, but absent proof or more evidence, it's all conflicted voters have to go on. I think if they were inclined to vote for Biden before, they'll not be disinclined to change their vote. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig, our name for a recurring segment where we settle scores and tell you what really happened in the huddle when Scottie Pippen refused to take the floor. Was he butt hurt about not being the star? You'll want to find out. But first, House Democrats, under the leadership of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, near passage of a $3 trillion stimulus package, Trump says he'll veto it. It will have a tough time in the Senate. But that should not surprise or dismay Nancy Pelosi. The Speaker, now in her second term, Pelosi, though criticized by the left, has held her party together with a skill and guile that could rival anyone who's ever held that gavel. How does she do it? Time Magazine's Molly Ball is here with an answer as she discusses the subject and title of her book, Pelosi. (music) unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter, or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. as was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way. Or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H A R, like the first three letters in hard, B I N G E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Who's the most powerful woman in the history of the United States? Now, if you pause for a second and said, well, I don't know, Sandra Day O'Connor, Eleanor Roosevelt, it says something because the answer is clearly Nancy Pelosi. What does it say? Well, maybe it says something about the effectiveness of her critics. Maybe it says something about the relative power of the House of Representatives these days. Or maybe it says something about the fact that up until now, she hasn't had a great biography, but now she does. Pelosi, written by the journalist Molly Ball, is out now. Molly, Welcome to The Gist.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that great plug.
0: Yes. So let me also say that aren't you glad that Marsha Fudge didn't beat Pelosi? Then you'd have to have written a book called Fudge.
1: (laughs) Well, everybody loves Fudge, right?
0: Yeah, I guess.
1: Might have been an easier sell.
0: (laughs) So let's start with who she was and where she came from, not Marcia Fudge, Nancy Pelosi, which is Baltimore. And she's the scion of a political family. But as I was thinking about it, it's an interesting experiment because most uh, people who grew up in politics and went into politics got the benefit of the family name, or at least territorial rights. They go into politics in an area near where their family is famous. So here we have Nancy Pelosi. She learns about politics. She studies it. It's the family business, but then she moves across the country, and the fact that her last name is different from the last name of her father and brother, who were mayors of Baltimore, well, that doesn't really help her. It's kind of an interesting natural experiment, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that while obviously there's been a lot of focus on the family business and what she must have learned from her father, who was a congressman representing Baltimore and then became the mayor of Baltimore when she was seven years old, There's been a lot of focus on the skills that she would have learned from that household. And I think that's clearly correct. But at the same time, as you say, she didn't really benefit from that electorally. And she did develop a lot of those skills herself. You know, her five older brothers were all sort of consciously schooled in the political arts by their parents, but she was not because she was a girl. Nobody expected that she might go into the family business, and her parents uh, hoped that she would become a nun instead. So I think that she deserves a lot of credit for sort of creating her own political image, political profile, 3,000 miles away from the D'Alessandro family that was so prominent in Baltimore in a place where that name, even if she, she did have it, wouldn't have meant anything.
0: Yeah. And perhaps the most important and impactful de Alessandro was Annunziata, who's her mother, who obviously helped shape her personality at least as much as her dad did.
1: Yes. and, And I really wanted to return the focus to her mother with this book. Her mother, Anunciata Lombardi was her maiden name. She had a lot of hopes and dreams herself. She wanted to go to law school. She wanted to be an auctioneer. She wanted to start a business. She invented a beauty product. So she wasn't able To pursue some of those dreams. And uh, I think because of that, Nancy Pelosi always wants people to belatedly recognize her mother and the important role that her mother played uh, in her life and in the family business as sort of the the strategist behind her her father, the politician. And she's very frank about the fact that her mother was stifled in her own hopes and dreams. Nancy Pelosi was not. Uh, But she did come to it rather late in life. She was always political, literally born into you know, the Democratic Party and having helped her father with his elections and his constituent work from the time she was little. And she kept campaigning for the Democratic Party throughout her young adulthood. Uh, when she was you know, living in midtown Manhattan with her husband, who was a banker, uh, she would be pushing the stroller around the neighborhood and putting Democratic leaflets under people's doors. And this is a contrast to, you know, this is the 70s when a lot of people's, especially young people, were expressing their political views by going out and protesting, burning draft cards, that kind of thing. That was never her style. She was never an activist in that way. She was a party operative. And so when she followed her husband to his hometown of San Francisco, and after having five children in the space of six years, once she had a little bit of breathing room in her life, it was really through the party that she expressed her political impulses, becoming a fundraiser, becoming a sort of strategist and operative. She was chair of the California Democratic Party, brought the 84 convention to San Francisco and made a failed run for the Democratic National Committee chair. And then a friend of hers who was a member of Congress and who was dying of cancer called her to her bedside and made her promise to run for that seat in Congress and then had to wage a very difficult campaign for the seat against 13 other candidates in the special election. And that's how she got to Congress in 1987.
0: If you had asked her in 1987, if you could give her a little crystal ball, uh, a Molly crystal ball, if you will, (laughs) uh, cast ahead, And the question is, what about your stances are you most surprised about? So not the fact that you became the first female Speaker of the House or how American politics shaked out, but I'm just trying to get a sense of there's always this criticism of pelosi maybe selling out her ideals or some ideal version of her ideals but let's look at her as the purest distillation of her political idealism it's 1987 she enters the house now you get to know the sort of things that you're championing in 2020 what would most surprise her
1: Well, her ideology, which I've thought about a lot, is a sort of interesting combination of the inheritance she received from her father's Democratic Party, which was very much the New Deal Democratic Party of FDR that wanted to use sort of big government to give benefits to people. And then the San Francisco liberalism that she became an adult around. You know, she was always very pro-environment, pro-gay rights, anti-war, in favor of reproductive rights, interestingly, although her family and her church were against a, a woman's right to choose, she was always in favor of it. But what would surprise her today about the things she believed then? Honestly, I think she's been quite consistent in and the set of values. And 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 she likes to say that you know people perceive San Francisco as being out on the far left edge of the political spectrum, but she thinks it's just a few years ahead. So I I think it's possible to look at the way that she's led the House as Speaker and say, oh well, she's She's more cautious now because she's more, the experience of 2010 maybe taught her to worry more about the frontline members in Republican-leaning districts in order to protect her majority. But I think she would also say that her job as speaker is to represent the breadth of her caucus, and that's the ideological mm-hmm. spectrum from, you know, the AOCs, the world, all the way to the sort of conservative Democrats who got her back into the speakership, right, by winning those conservative districts. You know,
0: that what you just said, that is... My main insight into Nancy Pelosi, that for all her interpersonal skills, her skill at tactics, her skill at communication, which sometimes it's a great skill, sometimes less so, she understands right now, she understands this one big truth about the Democratic Party. She never wavers from it. And the truth is that it's her job to represent the entire caucus, which means she can't Be outflanked or hurt or flayed by the Democratic Socialist aligned members of the caucus. She can't get pulled off that one truth by critics in the press. She will always represent the interests of everyone in her caucus. She knows where the median point in her caucus is, and that's where she's going to direct her efforts. And most of the criticism. Seems to me, people disagree that that should be the median point, but she's a realist. She says, that's where it is, and that's who I'm going to do my job with that median point in mind.
1: I would agree with that for the most part. I would take it one step further because the thing that I think you have to understand about Nancy Pelosi is that she's always focused on results, right? The word one of her uh, mentors used for her was operational. She always wants to get something done. So... She's always trying to get the most out of any particular negotiation to pull that legislation toward the left pole and she personally is a liberal is a progressive is not a socialist but is very much in the sort of liberal heart of the of the party caucus Uh, but she wants at the end of the day to get something done. So she's going to negotiate as hard as possible, and she's a notoriously tough negotiator. And she has the credibility in her caucus to get all the votes lined up for whatever compromise it is she's negotiated, whether it's with the Republicans in the House, in the Senate, in the White House. But her ultimate goal is to get something done that advances toward her goals as far as possible.
0: So what would Nancy Pelosi admit that she got played on, or maybe not that big a step, what would she admit that sh- a tactic or strategy that she employed that did not work and it was her fault?
1: Uh, she would not. She doesn't do regret. Ask people <laughs> you're interviewing, what, what do you think, you look back on and think was a mistake? She will say to you, I don't do regret. It's just not something I indulge. She doesn't do regret and she doesn't do fear.
0: But then how does she learn? Perhaps how does she does she learn not need from to. Past I don't
1: mistakes? know. Uh, but no, I mean, there are some things. Clearly, she failed to end the war in Iraq, right, when the Democratic majority was elected in 2007. And that was the mandate they she, had from she voters. She did, they yes. They won it was those her, midterm right. elections because the war was going badly and the American electorate wanted to end it and they wanted to send a signal to Washington to end it. And uh, she pushed the Bush administration as hard as she possibly could but they wouldn't do it. And I think there's a pretty interesting analogy there with the Republicans in Obamacare. They pushed as hard as they could to get the Democratic president to go back on his signature legislative achievement. They didn't make a lot of headway, but they did shut down the government and shut down sort of the whole system and legislative process. And Nancy Pelosi did not allow that to happen when her goal of moving the administration failed.
0: So as sexism fades a little bit, it's still there. The ugliest parts of it are still quite ugly. But if you just look at empirical data, more women getting elected, at least professed attitudes are changing. So as, as sexism fades a little bit in public life, and that is to Nancy Pelosi's benefit, moderation becomes more and more anathema. And the word neoliberal becomes a vituperative insult, even though I just always thought it was you know an accurate way to describe some post-war way of thinking are these two trends are they working at exact opposite speeds to sort of permanently shift her in place as someone who's always dealing with headwinds even when the headwinds what the exact headwinds are change
1: it, look the, the democratic party is getting marginally more liberal in large part because of the younger generation but these perceptions are mostly shared by a sort of small faction on the left right i don't think that you can say that that's a universal sentiment Uh, even among Democrats. In fact, the Democrats just nominated a moderate, uh, an old school moderate, an old moderate, precisely because he was promising this sort of -of middle-of-the-road idea. And at least half of self-identified Democrats consider themselves moderate rather than liberal. So it's not as liberal as a party as it sometimes looks on Twitter. And that goes for women as well. You know, a lot of the women who sort of uprising against Trump since 2016 has been, in my view, the dominant political dynamic of the last few years. A lot of those women are, you know, suburban women, college-educated white women, former Republicans or, or former independents who've been sort of galvanized and radicalized, but who don't consider themselves to be on, you know, the activist left. So the energized segment of the Democratic Party is not even necessarily only the far left. And and, and the reason that Democrats are the majority in the House is because of those moderate suburban white women. It's because of those people who weren't Democrats before who became Democrats and the candidates, the moderate candidates running in red-leaning districts who were able to convince them that they were reasonable enough to vote for.
0: Nancy Pelosi has been criticized by some factions within her party and even some factions who refuse to identify as a Democrat as not sufficiently resistant, as not opposing Donald Trump as much as she could. My question is, from what you know of her, does she loathe Donald Trump just as much as they do? Does she have that visceral, I don't want to say hatred, maybe her Catholic upbringing wouldn't allow her to admit that, but does she have that visceral disgust with who he is and what he represents just as much as the people who are noisiest about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, she was asked that question uh if you recall a few months ago when impeachment was underway, and she sort of chased down the reporter who asked it and 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 uh, chastised him for accusing her of hating the president for exactly that reason, right? She said that that because of her Catholic heritage, you know, hate was out of the question. Right. and and don't don't even mess with me when it comes to that word. So she wouldn't use the word hate. But I think it's very clear that she is viscerally offended uh, yeah. by by him as a person and by everything he represents that, you know she's an institutionalist and when and when we saw her tear up that state of the union speech i think she was just offended by the speech offended by the falsehoods in the speech offended by the spectacle and the sort of defiling of the floor of the house of representatives that went on during the speech but again she's always focused on results and it and and she is pretty cold-blooded when it comes to that she'll still go in there and negotiate on infrastructure even if she has very little uh, respect for the man she's negotiating with, because it's got to be done if she's going to achieve her goals of improving people's lives. So it doesn't really matter what her personal feelings are on that level, right? It only matters what she can get out of the situation to advance the goals that she cares about. And that is going to leave cold some people who just want an emotional response, some people who just want a sort of protest staged, right? Uh, she is going to say, and this is, I think, you saw this in in the way that she resisted impeachment for the better part of a year. I think she would look back on that and say that she was vindicated because even though she eventually went along with the impeachment drive, even though she eventually felt that she had to do it, both on the merits and because her caucus had moved to that position, what she said from the beginning was, "This will be divisive and pointless. We're not going to remove Donald Trump from office. It's not going to happen." And it's going to be divisive and it's going to take a lot of time and effort and, and take the focus away from the more constructive and, and impactful things that we could be doing. And that pretty much turned out to be the case. And you did have a lot of people on the left arguing, well, what if you just you know move the window of perception by, by putting it out there? What if you just fight harder and try and make it happen? Well, they fought as hard as they could and it didn't happen for the same reasons that it was never going to happen. So I think that she is quite disgusted by Trump. But she's not as focused on her personal feelings as she is on what she can achieve.
0: Is the point of this $3 trillion CARES Act that, as far as I can see, most everyone says has no chance of passage, is it just a statement or is there something deeper or different going on?
1: Well, it's a statement, but I don't think it's just a statement, right? Because it is a concrete... Uh, illustration of what Democrats would like to see in this legislation. Uh, it's, so it's laying down a marker. It's for political purposes as well, sending a signal to the American people, look, Democrats are trying to do something while Republicans say nothing needs to be done. Uh, and that's literally true at the moment. Uh, but also trying to jumpstart the negotiation that's not happening at this point because the Republicans don't think anything needs to be done right now. Uh, the Democrats have no one to negotiate with but themselves. So uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi is like the 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 shark that will die if it stops moving. Uh, not that I'm predicting her death, just that she's a very active human being and always wants to be doing something. So this is a way of trying to jumpstart that negotiation by sort of making an opening offer and challenging the other side to to come to the table and to lay out their own set of positions.
0: And is there precedent for that working?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of negotiations start that way where the, you know, the House does something and then the Senate follows or the other side comes to the table and so on. And, 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 you know, the House drafted its own version of the previous legislation, which went nowhere, but gave the Democrats a way not only to express their priorities, but to bring them to bear on the negotiating process.
0: Molly Ball is Time Magazine's national political correspondent. You see her on CNN. Before that, she was writing for The Atlantic. And her new biography is called Pelosi. Thank you, Molly.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was fun.
0: And now the spiel. It's an ant ant twig. It happens every three weeks, except when there's a pandemic and I say it doesn't. Did you know that about the English word for 21 ant ant twig? It is true. It is true as anything else that I've ever told you about the English word for 21. So I took a bit of heat from people who didn't like my defense of Jared Kushner the other day. No, he did not say the election could be delayed. And there's an update on that. So on the show yesterday, I quoted Kushner answering a question. The question was, can you commit to a November 3rd election day? And he answered, it's not my decision to make. Yahoo News mischaracterized this exchange as him not ruling out delaying the election. I mean, he also didn't rule out wearing a purple onesie and having everyone refer to him by his Teletubby name, Poe. So that was two days ago. One day ago, it wasn't Yahoo and Representative Carolyn Maloney repeating this false claim. It was the New York Times and Hillary Clinton. Again, I'll play the exchange from Time Magazine's interview with Kushner. Well, the, that the elections will happen on November 3rd? Uh, it's not my decision to make, so I, I'm not sure I can commit one way or the other. But right now, that's the plan. New York Times headline, Kushner, law aide doesn't rule out delaying 2020 election. Again, the quote it's not my decision to make. Here was Hillary Clinton retweeting the Times story. I can't believe I have to write this sentence, but the president's son in law doesn't get to decide when the election is. Uh, it's not my decision to make. So I, I'm not. Look, I guess it's okay because really there's nothing else important going on in the world today. And let's leave on this quote from a listener. From Facebook, I don't look at Facebook too much anymore, but really put your quotes up there. Every once in a while, they'll flit across my consciousness. Here's Walter Robinson analyzing and assessing the accuracy and factual nature of my analysis. Quote, don't care what your reasoning is. Defending Jared Kushner is a bad look. Thank you. I do have a correction to make. I stated that the N in N95 masks meant NIOSH, but then I was alerted to the truth. Here it is in the form of a video from the Indoor Air Quality Association. So for a second there, watching the Indoor Air Quality Association video, I thought it was good. In the United States, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH for short, certifies these respirators. Okay, I said, I said that was the end, the NIOSH, but then… So what does this N95 stand for? The N represents a filter series that signifies it's not resistant to oil-based
1: aerosols, such as lubricants
0: and cutting fluids. Yes, the N is for a long-winded phrase, not resistant to oil-based aerosols. What kind of initialization scheme is that? Oh, the B-52 bomber? Yeah, the B stands for be aware it's not a fighter jet. Oh, the U-2 spy plane? The U, it's um, an unboat. Not about, not about at all. So I found out there are three kinds of respirators and they are the NPR respirators. N for not resistant to oil, P for oil proof, and R for resistant to oil. I want an NPR mask. It filters out all the shrillness and jarring edges of the world and only lets in the smooth, smooth sounds of the erudite. Like when a salty bartender tells you, hit the bricks, numbnuts! What you'll hear is this. I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air. So nice. I got some more mail. Mike, last Friday, it's actually a couple Fridays ago, because my aunt Aunt twig during a pandemic rule. Last Friday, you broke down the numbers of swimming pool deaths. I remember this. This was Fox News was interviewing Dr. Phil might have been Doctor Scholes. No, actually, it was Doctor Phil. Doc Rivers. Nope, Doctor Phil, and Doctor Phil made a mistake of the total number of swimming pool deaths in America by I think like ten thousand percent, if I recall. And this listener, sweatpants and sauce at Rowdy Rob, says, "Well, I never caught a car crash from being in the same room as a person who was in Iraq. That is true, right? That's another good point. That swimming pool deaths have nothing to do with contagion, but the coronavirus does." But, Rob goes on to say, but every once in a while we have contagious car wrecks. It's called a pileup. I-80 in Wyoming has one every couple years. Just last March, 23 tractor trailers crashed into each other. Three people died. And now to my point, do you know what they did when car crashes became contagious? They shut down the interstate until you could get it under control. That is an excellent point. A less good point was submitted by some listeners who thought I was unfair to Sweden. Some of them were fine, but um, let me quote this one guy. I guess Mike Pesca doesn't understand how trade-offs work. This is what Sweden did. They didn't close school and they didn't shut down shops and restaurants. On the plus side, this means their kids are happier and better educated and their shops and restaurant owners are less broke. On the negative side, they did have more COVID-19 fatalities. yeah, <laughs> he goes on. But on the plus side, they now have more citizens with antibodies. Okay, as far as me not understanding trade-offs, my trade-off would be that some people won't die because they won't get the coronavirus. Whereas your idea of the trade-off seems to emphasize, yes, yes, yes. But the people who won't die, it's not because they avoid it. It's because they get it and live through it. You see? You see? Yeah, I do see the herd immunity idea, which is how we would attack it if it were 1305. Just let her rip. Hope we're hardy enough to beat it. There's this word, variolation. It's not a vaccination. It's taking a little smallpox and rubbing it in the wound and hope your child survives. But that's okay. You have eight children and, you know, two to five of them probably will die anyway. I understand herd immunity, so how the figures work is it takes about 60%, could be 70, maybe less than 60, to get the virus, survive, and then the herd has immunity. Okay, but let's look at the numbers. Let's look at New York. So far in New York, and this is almost entirely in the city and the suburbs, very few further north in the suburbs, 27,000 people have died, and there's about 20% immunity in the population. So to get to the 60 We'd have to triple what we've gone through so far. I'm sorry. I don't want to see close to 100,000 people killed. I don't want 80, 70 something, 80,000 more people dying. I'm not willing to sign up for 30 something more 9-11s. The death toll in New York, a 9-11, 2,500 people. I don't want a month plus of 9-11s. I understand the trade-off. It's a bad trade. Okay. And finally, to the Lobstar of the Antan Twig. The award given to the most outstanding listener who interacts with us, definitely not the Lobstar, is a person who gave us this one-star review. Short-term, negative. I was a daily listener to this podcast, but not anymore. The episode title, Isolation in the Nation, published on March 26th, was so depressing based on all the negative material said. There were some statistics mentioned, but all in a negative perspective. Words like staggering number, more are coming, they're all gone, paint the jobs picture in a very negative light. There was no mention of the reason behind the unemployment claims and no silver lining. Words like work from home, temporary, hope, have faith, help is on the way, more unemployment benefits, we're in this together, stay safe, we're not expressed. And that omission puts every listener in a negative mindset. Well, Seth1005555, this isn't buck up your spirit's happy hour, is it? This is tell you what's actually going on in the world. I promised to give you the gist, not the nitrous oxide. We're square, we're square. Oh, and go on iTunes and leave us a review, please. And don't try to be funny and give us a one star. You know, you can be funny and insult us, just give us a five star. Anyway, now to the actual lobster of the antantwig. twig Yesterday, I was talking about all the pigs being slaughtered, not in a slaughterhouse, but by farmers by hand. I mean, this could have been marketed as artisan pig murder, but it was seen for some reason as especially sad. Okay, I get that. But Hayes Thieling wrote in, really enjoyed today's gist, but you let a great opportunity slip by. It's not just a pig apocalypse. It's an a porkalypse. Stay safe, dude. I will now safe in the knowledge that terrible, disturbing pig slaughter puns are out there and just ready to be served up with an apple in their mouth. And you, Hayes Thieling, you are the lobster of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the Gist's associate producer. She's just completing her book, Stenny. should be about a quarter as good as Pelosi. Daniel Schrader. He'd, he'd read fudge. He'd also read a similar book about the senior senator from Idaho, Crapo. On Amazon, people who got fudge also got Crapo. The gist, intentionally mispronouncing Mike Crapo's name for shirts and gurgles since 2020. And thanks for listening.